I think I was intrigued by the idea that um, poor people, people who are experiencing oppression, even citizens whose needs aren't being accounted for by their governments um, in the U.S. and elsewhere, um, are winning on the numbers side. Like we're actually more numerous than mm -hmm. people in government, and yet, um, or people in um, corporate structures that aren't accountable to um, consumers or shareholders. Um, so we have the numbers on our side, and yet we're still losing often. Mm -hmm. And that's a sort of conundrum, like why are we losing if we're more numerous? Um, and a lot of it is about organized power, that like the people are not united towards a common goal. And um, and it's, it's not just about um, passion, but also about strategy. There was a pivotal moment when I was uh, in 2010 in India, um, I was volunteering with an NGO called Dalit Foundation, which works on caste issues. And we had just done a site visit to the Chengara land struggle, which is um, an area of land, a tract of land that um, 20,000 people had occupied to try to prevent a company from taking it over with the support of the government. 25 Dalit activists had climbed trees on the road coming into Chengara and tied their sari scarfs on the branch of the tree and tied the other end to their necks and Ugh. threatened to jump if they were evicted. Ugh. And when we met with these activists coming back from that trip, um, some of the Dalit uh, leaders who I was training were saying, when are we gonna be willing to die for our dignity? When are we gonna kind of have that level of commitment? For me, that's like why organizing is so intriguing because it's getting the recipes to make the soup, like mm -hmm. to know actually how could you build power in a way that combines that incredible passion with a kind of um, strategy and methodology that uh, other people have found effective, and um, that if we can if we can take both of those together, some of that zeal and some of the strategy, then we're pretty unstoppable. Mm -hmm even in the Bronx here in the US. Um, we were, I started as a tenant organizer working on affordable housing and then I moved on to working with whole institutions, with um, congregations and, and churches working on these issues together. And so we had a lot of people, but um, some of the affordable housing legislation we were trying to pass really depended on the state senator in that district standing up for uh, the residents of the district. And mm -hmm. that state senator, Frank Gonzalez, was indicted on corruption charges. Mm -hmm. And then his replacement, Pedro Spada, was also indicted on corruption mm -hmm. charges. And so in spite of our best attempts, we were un unable to advance the housing legislation we needed. And it got me thinking about how just because these people happened to be the ones in office, they had so much uh, sway, so much power over the community that they were representing um, that you know thousands of people would have to organize to try to stop a bad decision that one of them had. And so it really drew me to work in government. Uh, or I um, did my master's um, and and focused on learning more about how the U.S. has worked on anti-corruption in other contexts and try to um, get smart and not just be a do-gooder American running around the world, um, but to really um, learn lessons from the past. And then um, in 2013, joined the State Department. I think it's really promising to see 
the nexus of a strong civil society and um, government, people working in government who are really responsive to the needs and the wants that are brought by civil society representing the larger public. So um, on these issues of anti-corruption, it's just wonderful at this juncture to, to, to witness it, to be part of these conversations, to see the momentum behind a lot of these initiatives, um, to see the desire to commit to, to change, and um, just to kind of talk through how to, to confront um, a lot of the challenges, whether they be technical or issues of like will or, or how to just make it work. Corruption is a problem because it's one end of a spectrum of abuse of power that mm -hmm. ends in atrocities. And if governments start betraying the trust of their citizens by stealing their money, there's no reason that they wouldn't betray their trust by harming their um, human dignity, by violating their rights in other ways. Um, and so we should kind of stem the abuse of power at the money stage before mm -hmm. it gets to the human mm -hmm. um, dignity stage. People who take a zero tolerance approach to corruption can be painting the world with a very broad brush because they're going to see any instance of corruption as equally problematic somehow. If somebody's paying a bribe to get their grandmother a hospital bed, we shouldn't criminalize that person. They're responding to a corrupt system as best they can and we would do the same probably. Nobody these days thinks that there's one silver bullet to corruption. It really requires that kind of multifaceted approach. And if we're not um, using all of the tools at our disposal from the prevention angle and the punitive angle, then it's likely to fail. And so in the same way that just fiscal transparency isn't going to work because you have to have some accountability and some consequences, just accountability and consequences also won't work because um, in an environment where everybody's corrupt, then law enforcement is going to become one more tool for reinforcing that corrupt status quo. I think that's a very common thing about humanity is that um, often we forget that we may speak different languages, we may live in different places, but the things at the end of the day that we really want are kind of the same as like security, uh, food, all of these basic needs, but also to just be able to live, uh, live and, and provide for your family and, and create and, and you know, exercise what it means to be human.